0: International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live Bible answer program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a question on the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call us at 1 888 827 5276. That's 1 88 Ask CSN. Now let's get things started. Here's today's host.
1: Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome to today's program of To Every Man and Answer, where we take your Bible questions, questions about the Christian faith, what we believe, and why we believe it. My name is John Randall, and I'm the pastor at Calvary South OC, located in San Clemente, California. And joining me today is my friend and colleague, Pastor Scott Parker from Calvary Chapel Festus, located in Festus, Missouri. And Pastor Scott is one of the featured speakers here on csn with his radio broadcast a word for the church scott so great to see you again brother miss seeing you and it's it's great to be able to work with you today
2: the uh the, the feelings are mutual my brother thank you for having me and it's great
1: to be on with you today john yeah thank you so much and hey is it i just have a question for those listening is it taco tuesday out there where you live or just <laughs> there? do you guys have tacos in missouri
2: is that is that a real thing Well, I mean, we do, but you have to you have to figure out where to get them now. What you call a taco and what we call a taco are two different things. Here, they think Taco Bell's tacos. Oh boy! But here's John. It's funny you brought that up. So (laughs) my youngest my youngest son's birthday's this week, and we asked him where he wanted to go for birthday dinner. You know what he said? Where do you think? He wants to go up into North St. Louis where there's an actual authentic Mexican restaurant that makes real street tacos just like they do in Mexico. There you go, it brother. It is authentic, hey. and so I'm glad you said that because that's where we're headed in a few days. So.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Well, happy birthday to your son, and may your tacos be amazing. <laughs> well, today we're so glad to be able to answer Bible questions. And our first question, interesting, Jennifer from where else? Festus, yeah. Missouri, and she's got a question on First Corinthians. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the program. How can we help you today?
3: Okay. First Corinthians 129, yes. that no flesh, no flesh should glorify in his presence. Now, I've been doing Bible studies verse by verse, word by word, and I just couldn't come up with this out of my Bible because it doesn't have any quotation notes underneath it. So this was one of my questions. I outlined it for the Bible Answer Man. So what does that mean exactly? I mean, I give God glory every day. I mean, I thank him for everything. Even in my bad days, I thank him. And um, what does that mean that we don't give him glory in our flesh? I mean, where does that stand at?
1: Well, when you look at those passages in context, you know, Paul is talking there about how the Lord uses the foolish things of the world— to confound the wise, the base things of the world, the things that maybe people in the world would overlook. Those are the very people and individuals that God uses. And Paul goes on to explain the reason why God uses individuals that people might say, well, they're a nobody. And and yet in God's economy, God wants to use them for his glory. The reason why God uses the foolish things of the world, Jennifer, is so that no flesh, no person can glory. Nobody can say, look what I did. And, uh, and instead we give glory to God. Uh, Pastor Scott, what can you say to your friend here out in Festus,
2: Missouri? Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thanks for calling. And you know, it's a great question. And John's exactly right. The whole, the whole point to that verse is basically to say this, that God is sovereign, number one. Uh, so he can use who he wants to use and do what he wants to do because he's sovereign, but he does those things and uses who he uses regardless of how man views the person or uses the means he wants to use regardless of the way we look at it you know uh you know isaiah said that the lord's ways are above our ways and higher than our ways and beyond our own understanding but paul gives us the reason here why god does what he does is so that he receives all the glory for what is done and so when you look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, that is actually the reason why God created us. The Bible says in Revelation 4, 11, which is one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible, uh, John writes and says that um, God created everything, and that's including me and you, for his, King James says, pleasure. Uh, other versions say for his will but literally what it means is god created us for his glory and that's why we exist um you know i know uh though i'm not a reformed theolo- uh, theologian uh, i do agree with the westminster catechism shorter catechism that says that really man's whole purpose here on earth uh is to enjoy god is is to give god glory bring him glory and enjoy him forever and i believe that is why god created us so john Oh, that's such a great
1: answer. And Jennifer, I love that passage of scripture for a number of
2: reasons, because
1: if God can use people like us and you don't have to be, you know, it's not, someone said, I believe it was Robert Murray McShane. He said, it's not great talents that God blesses, but great likeness to Jesus and no flesh is going to glory. He gets all the glory for everything that he does. And I'm so glad, Jennifer, as you mentioned that you choose to give God glory on the good days and on the bad days. Praise God for that. I hope that helps you, Jennifer.
3: Yes, it does. And, you know, it's really amazing. I got a son. I've been witnessing, too. And I I called in about a few times about him, but I <clears throat> talked about my daughter-in-law. But I left her a message, a prayer. I pray for everybody early in the morning, even Pastor Scott and his family. They're the first ones on the prayer list. And <laughs> I started I started between 435 o'clock and it doesn't stop till 6. So, I mean, I just literally lay there and I just pray. And um, Jesus was Jesus doing it, I, like, I just want to sleep. But I was like, kind of wake up and pray. So I was like, okay, we get up and pray. But um, what I was going to say, I something came to word to me, and it was so true. People, they carry a lot of burdens. They stack them up like in a wood pile. And then eventually, that wood will catch on fire. But If you look at it this way, if you take that wood pile and you unstack it and you make it the sign of the cross, Jesus will take your burdens and everything you have. And that's what I've learned about giving God glory over my depression, over my anxiety, over my pain, over anything that's coming my way. And that's what I've learned so much by going to Calvary Chapel. And it's just, you know, it's just amazing how much I was just a little baby Christian, and now it's like I'm just blooming into this beautiful flower that God's making (laughs) me. It's just amazing, and I give God all the glory. You know, he
1: is. Amen. That's beautiful. Jennifer, thank you so much. What a great testimony that is. And I'm sure for my brother here, uh, pastoring out in your area and, and just hearing that, what a blessed praise report. Hey, continue to give God the glory. And, um, and that's true. The cross is what alleviates the burdens. That's why Jesus came. And if you hang on the line, I'm sure that our folks here at CSN would love to send you out some materials. That'll be a real blessing to you. Thanks again, Jennifer. God bless you. Let's go now to Pat at Fort Worth. Texas or oh, wait, not Pat. We're going to Darlene. Pat, hang on. We're going to Darlene in Myrtle Beach. Oh, it's Pat. Pat, we are. We're going to Texas before we go to Myrtle Beach. We're traveling all over the place. Pat, how can we help you? Welcome to the great state of Texas. Uh,
4: well, there you go. Uh, yeah, my question is in Second Chronicles five eight. Uh, it says they, you know, they're talking about bringing the. Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. And the way it describes the cherubim wings covering the Ark, it almost sounds like they are actively moving their wings. The two huge gold statues are actively moving. And I went through the concordance, and it looks like the words used are... The word that's normally used for actively covering and doing things, not just standing there putting it under a covering, but like something's been moved over it.
1: All right. Well, that's a really interesting uh, insight that you were drawing from there. You know, let me just say that, first of all, the Ark of the Covenant was to be a representation of the throne of God on the earth. And when Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle of all the pieces of furniture that he was to build, the Ark of the Covenant was the most significant and it was placed in the holiest of all places. And God gave Moses specific instructions as to how this particular piece of furniture was to be built inside of the Ark. We know there was the Ten Commandments. There was some manna. There was also the rod of Aaron that budded. And on top of the Ark, well, it was the mercy seat. Now, the significance of the cherubim uh, around the Ark of the Covenant. Pastor Scott, what would you say to that?
2: Well, what you see is when you look at both the tabernacle and the temple that was built, they follow the same general pattern. And so what's interesting is the Ark of the Covenant itself is literally a physical picture of the throne of God in heaven. It's a physical representation of the throne of God in heaven. Uh, The Holy of Holies, is a is a uh, a physical representation of the throne room of God in heaven um of which we actually see in the book of revelation in chapters 4 and 5 now what's interesting is you know the uh, the writer of hebrews uh, talks about this and what he tells us is that the tabernacle and the temple later but the tabernacle was actually created and made, Moses received from God instructions to make all these things according to the pattern which God had showed him. So God actually gave him blueprints, actually gave him a pattern. I believe that pattern was the very presence of God. And when Moses then was instructed to put that, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to metal and wood, <laughs> you know, and skins, it came up being the tabernacle that, that we had, which the temple was, was made after that same general pattern. So the Lord gave him the, you know, all of the, um, instructions of how to make it, but it tells us that the pattern was the, um, was, was the throne room in heaven. It was what, where God dwelt. And we know that when we look at the book of Revelation, chapter four or five, we look at, you know, Ezekiel says a lot about this as well in the early chapters of Ezekiel about how around the presence of God, which the mercy seat was a representation of the throne of God, around God's throne are angels, and there are cherubim, and there's the four living creatures, which seem to be some class of cherubim, um, and there's angels all around, and so that's why you have uh, on the veil, on the veil before you came into the holy of holies, you had the artwork, um, embroidery of, of cherubim on there. And then you had the, uh, the cherub over the mercy seat. Now, what is very interesting is, is when you go back and you look at Ezekiel 28, uh, Isaiah 14, it actually tells us that Satan himself, Lucifer, he was known by then, uh, was the cherub that actually covered and what that, most likely refers to is at one place, the devil himself, Lucifer, as he was known then, which means son of the morning, he actually had this position where he was like one of those cherub that covered that you see in the tabernacle in the temple that he was was a, a, an, an angel, was a cherubim that was above the throne of God. Um, and some say that because of his makeup that we read about, you know, in Ezekiel and Isaiah, that he was the worship leader of all the other, he was leading all the other angels in worship in heaven. Um, so that's kind of the background of all that and why, you know, why you kind of see that the way it is with the, the two cherubim over the mercy seat. Um, but I don't know, I do not know, and I've, you know, I've, I've Studied Hebrew for five years, and I don't know of anything in that verse that says that these ain't, that these cherubim, you know, who are made of gold, um, are, are moving at all, that there's any movement. Uh, if there's any movement that we see in these verses, it would be in the verse previous, um, where it actually tells us that the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant. So they were moving the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. Which the cherubim would have been on the ark of the covenant. That's the only movement you see would be in verse seven, but them actually having their wings spread over the mercy seat. It's not that they spread them over, but those cherubim were created and were, were fashioned and made as if their wings are over the mercy seat. So that's what we see there, John. Right. Thank you so much,
1: Pat. I hope that helps you. I don't think the wings were moving on the, on the actual ark of the covenant, but right. the angels that are in heaven. Their wings are moving, uh, for sure. The Bible says, with one they flew. Isaiah, you know, this whole thing, is, as Pastor Scott alluded to, they, they're moving, uh, and they go where the Lord sends them. But that statue was to be that representation of the angels that are around the throne of God. I hope that helps you. Does that help you, Pat? Yeah, it's just uh, when I
4: compared the various different versions of the Bible, uh actually, my wife asked me the question, because she's more into grammar than I am, uh, I... <laughs> read through the various different translations and versions of the bible and they all read you know and it's i don't have it right in front of me because i'm driving but it read like and the cherubim spread spread their wings over the ark of the covenant as if they were actually moving now obviously god can make anything move that he wants to so it wouldn't surprise me it's just i would never read it that way myself
1: Right. And I, even looking at the verb that is used, I'm looking at the Hebrew word there. It does say spread forth, but it doesn't imply that they, the, the, that it's moving. Um, uh, it's, but, but it just, they're just in place. They're, they're created in such a way that the wings are spreading out over mm-hmm. the ark. Not they're actually moving, but they're spreading out. And so, Pat, I hope that helps you. God bless you out there in Fort Worth, United States of Texas out there. And uh man, stick on the line. We'll send you out some stuff. And thanks again for listening today. And uh, God bless you, brother. Listen, folks, if you're listening today, I want to encourage you, if you have any questions, call 888-888 ask CSN that's 888 ask CSN we got Scott Parker here and uh love to take your questions right now we're going to go out to Darlene thank you for being patient out there in Myrtle Beach South Carolina by the way um before we get to your question are there any waves in Myrtle Beach I'm just curious <laughs> yes there <laughs> are are there do people surf in Myrtle Beach yes my son
5: surfs, but he's so tall he has to have a longboard because the waves what? are not very tall Well,
1: that's all right. Thank you for answering (laughs) my question. Let's get to yours.
5: Uh, Thank you for taking my call, Pastor Scott and Pastor John. I I just want to say before I start, uh, I work in a car lot, uh, in a used car lot, and I I want you to know that when the cars come out, I turn every radio station to (laughs) CSN.
0: All right. (laughs) No matter what time of day it is. Yes.
5: (laughs) Uh, So that was not my question. But anyway, (laughs) um, so where Jesus is walking and the woman wants to be healed, and she just thinks to herself, I, I know if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. So she touches, touches him, touches the garment, and Jesus says, Who touched me? I felt my power go out from me. Hmm. My question is, why would he ask that? What, what was the purpose of that question? If he really knew who that was, you know, he knows who it was that touched him, why did he ask that, and to whom was he asking the question?
1: Mm, that is a very good question, Darlene. I'm so glad you asked it. I love that story and of that woman making her way through the crowd. You can almost imagine what that would be like and getting to Jesus. And then finally, just by faith, after 12 years of hemorrhaging, which would have left her out of the synagogue, left her unmarried or divorced if she was married. And so many implications came to a person that had this kind of issue. And Jesus was her only hope and she reached forward and grabbed hold of him. Pastor Scott, what would you say to that? What do you suppose? Who was he talking to? Why, why did he say power has gone out from me and, and who touched me?
2: Yeah. This is a very, very interesting, you know, uh, event that happens here because back in the book of Malachi, it actually tells us concerning the Messiah that when he comes, he will come with healing in his wings. What is interesting when it talks about the hem of the garment here, It most likely is talking about the hem or the fringes of the garment that the Jewish man would wear, which was called a talit or his prayer shawl. And those the hem of that garment um were actually these fringes. In the the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is zitzit, where the Lord told them to put a put a band of blue and to put these zitzitz on the end of their garments. So what's interesting is those those hems of those garments, those those fringes actually are knotted in such a way that they represent they're knotted with four different knots to represent the name of God. So this woman, being a Jew, would have known exactly to a Jewish person, you know, being a Jew herself, she would know what that garment represented and that garment was a connection to him because this would have been this would have been something Jesus would have used in prayer it was his prayer shawl he would have covered his head you know as jewish men did in that day to to go into literally a closet to be alone with the lord in prayer so it that garment represented jesus intimacy with his father his relationship with his father now what's interesting the end of the, the end of that garment the corner of that garment where those fringes were were tied to th- those corners were called the wings and so it's interesting because Malachi tells us when Messiah comes, he's going to come with healing in his wings. Well, she, she had some understanding of this because that's what she says. If I can only touch the hem of his garment, if I can only grab his name, which represents his character, which represents what he's like, he's compassionate, he's merciful and, and such. And she knew that because of Jesus' relationship with his father, that Jesus has power she knew there was something different about Jesus. And so she reaches out in faith thinking, if I can just touch the end of his, you know, the end of his, his garment there, I'll be made whole because it, it spoke of him and his relationship with his father and his own power. And what's interesting, I believe, John, when you look at the, you know, the, the, the other accounts of this in the gospels, because it's in a different couple of different places, whenever she touched his garment, and she said to herself, the Bible says that if I, if I do this, I know I'll be made well. Well, number one, the reason Jesus stops and notices this is because Jesus is God, and God always responds to people's act of faith. When a person from the depths of their heart puts all their faith in the Lord and responds by doing something to show their faith in God, that let me say this, they're throwing all their eggs into one basket, so to speak. The Bible says this woman spent all of her money— you know, trying to to be healed by spending all of her money on physicians, trying to be healed, it didn't work. She only had one place to turn, so she was putting all the faith that she had, sincerely from her heart, in Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that, responds, and so that's why it says power or vir- virtue went out of him. Jesus is saying here that that he, because of the woman's faith, he had something inside of him that was responding to that. And I believe it's his compassion and his mercy. And as it says, his virtue, some say it's his power. And she was healed and she was healed because she put her faith in Jesus. That's the main point there. I believe too, that actually Jesus was talking to the woman because there's a big crowd around and she's, you know, she's, she's a Jewish woman. So for her to reach out in public and touch another Jewish man was a no-no. So she really took a risk here. And I believe what Jesus was doing, cause when you look at the account, the Bible says that when, you know, she touched him and she said that, that he turned around and saw her and said to her, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. So I, I believe, you know, when he said, who touched me, I believe he was zeroing in on her. Like, I know it was you. I know you touched me. <laughs> but as, you know, as the Lord always does, you know, um, he, he draws us out of the crowd. He, when we put our faith in him, all of his attention now is not on the crowd. It's on us. It's on, it's, it's intimate. It's individual, you know? And I think that's what was going on here, John. I hope that helps you, Darlene. Love
1: that story. Love how we just reach out and the Lord meets us right where we are, no matter what our issue is. I love that. Darlene, does that help you? Yes,
5: it does. So basically, what you're saying is he, he already knew it was her and knew what she wanted. He just mm-hmm. said, "Who touched me?" to to maybe solidify the fact that he that he he was looking at her, so she, he knew what she already wanted.
2: Right? Yeah, he was he was recognizing her. She 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 reached out to him in faith, and he responded to her by noticing her, calling her out, and saying, "Hey, you're well." You know, it's kind of like this. Do you you remember when Adam was in the garden, when he was he he and Eve, they were hiding behind the trees, right? And because they had sinned against God, God came into the garden and God said, Adam, where are you? Well, God didn't say that to Adam because he didn't know where he was at. God said that to Adam in order to draw Adam out from behind the trees and to come to him and to confess his sin and to get things right. So it's, it's kind of the same principle. If, if you want to say that's what he was doing with her, it was more of drawing her out from the crowd, letting her know, listen, I know all your faith is in me because I, I, I felt virtue go out of me when you touched me. And so he's, he's now responding to her faith. And that's what God does. God, you know, and why he does this, I don't know, but he does choose to respond to us, uh, by answering our prayers and by moving on our behalf when we respond or, or when we come to him in faith. So John.
1: Oh, I love that. You know, uh thanks again, Darlene, for calling there from Myrtle Beach and tell your son to get out and catch a few for us. Uh pray for <laughs> us swell. You know, pray for surf, we say out here. Hey, if you stay on the line, we'd love to send you out some materials. And again, so appreciate uh your call today and your question. You know, Scott, before we go to the next caller, I just want to say, you know, I I love that section of scripture because, you know, the Lord no matter what the issue is, no matter what mm-hmm. we're going through, no matter what our listeners here may be listening today are wondering, can can the Lord minister to me? And He just asked, just take a step of faith, just reach out. If you just reach out, mm-hmm. and and it's almost like that in prayer, the touching of His garment. Lord, I I believe You. Just that step of faith, right. and how the Lord is so compassionate, and He draws our faith out, and and He meets us where we are. I love yeah. that. So, and John, I,
2: I I liked your pun you just made. You said whatever issue you have, come to Him in faith.
1: And she had one, <laughs> and God healed her.
2: Amen. Yes. praise the Lord,
1: <laughs> and He heals us. Well, we're getting close here, uh, Pastor Scott. To a break, we're just a couple minutes out, but we're gonna go to April real quickly, and then we'll—I'm sure—we'll get through this. But April there in Bakersfield, hey, Bakersfield, California, how can we help you?
5: Hi,
3: Pastor. Hi. I was wondering what does the Bible say about doing business with
1: Mm, that is a really good question. Uh, April saying, hey, you know, when it comes to the family business and relationship with family, oh, sometimes that can get a little dicey depending on what's going on. Are they a believer? What kind of business are we in? All of those things are, are really good questions to consider. And, um, you know, the Bible does have something to say about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, in other words, if you have family members that are saying, hey, let's start this business together, but they don't know the Lord, they don't have the same principles or values or live biblically like you do, there will come a point, and I've seen this, I'm sure Pastor Scott has as well, you get to this point where we can't go any further and then there's problems and you have strong convictions and they don't, and you don't know what to do. And then suddenly now there's this breakup in the family and money's involved. And I think you really have to use wisdom and discernment concerning this. And just a few minutes, I'm going to ask pastor Scott to really uh, dive a little bit deeper on this, because I know that this is something uh, just in pastoring a church that this, this is a question that's asked quite often April from people, you know, should I do this with my uncle or, you know, my mom really wants me to get involved in this, but you know, she's not a believer. Is this the right move for me? Should I, should I make uh make that uh, connection and partnership? And so listen, if you stick around, uh, pastor Scott, when we come back, he's going to drill down on this particular question. And so we'll be right back after this break. God bless you.
6: MediShare can save you a lot of money. The typical family saves $500 a month. And MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing ministry that's worked beautifully for 29 years. There are different options to choose from to fit your budget. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Maybe now is the perfect time to make the switch and start saving. Here you go. Call 855-91-BIBLE. That's 855-91-BIBLE. 855-91-BIBLE. Tragically,
3: every minute, unborn babies' futures are sucked out of existence. But amid the darkness, there's a light that shines. Preborn introduces mothers considering abortion to their unborn babies through ultrasound. Once she hears that heartbeat and sees a precious life, the majority of the time, she will choose life.
5: I got to hear how strong her heart was, I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. Preborn equips
3: centers nationwide to save babies' lives and souls and has rescued over 200,000 babies' lives through ultrasound. To learn more about the life-saving work of Preborn, call 855-668-BABY. That's 855-668-BABY or visit preborn.com that's preborn.com all gifts are tax deductible your love can save a life
1: buddy and welcome back to to Every Man and Answer this is the second half of our program boy time just flies when you're having a good time if you have a question call us from wherever you're at 888 888- Ask CSN, 888-ASK-CSN. I'm your host, John Randall, filling in for Pastor Mike Kessler today. And joining me on the program, Pastor Scott Parker of Calvary Chapel Festus. And Pastor Scott, um, <laughs> just before we went to the break, uh, April from Bakersfield, California, asked a really important question. Should a person go
2: into business with their family? What your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that just depends. And John, I actually thought that you were giving some really good precepts and principles uh to her before we went to the break. Like, you know, are your, you know, is your, is your family believers? I think that is an important thing to consider. Um, all those things that you listed a moment ago, I think those were, were great, uh, principles to look at. Now, when we do look at the Bible, we, and we go back into the culture of the Bible, we do see, you know, in Israel, uh, during Bible times, especially the New Testament. I mean, most, most, uh, businesses were family businesses. I mean, uh you know, Jesus' disciples who were fishermen. Uh you have James and John fishing with their father Zebedee, you know. I mean, they they were that's the way the culture was structured, where um, you know, it was one one rabbi said that if a man doesn't teach his son a uh, trade, then he only teaches him how to be a thief. So during Bible days in the setting of the Bible, that was normal. Uh, your children, you know, especially your sons went into the family business. So That was a normal thing. Uh, today that is really not our culture so much. Um, I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing. Um, if a father can, you know, teach his son skill and, and he can join him in a family business and take over the family. I think that's great if that can happen, but there's a lot of dynamics there that, that have to, you know, that have to come in place. I think it's important you know that a person who's a family member doesn't go into the family business because they feel pressured or they feel like well I'm expected to do this I have to do this because it's the family business you know um maybe their personality may not be set to do the business that their family has so that might be a reason that maybe God's gifted them and and just made them in a different way to do something different and so that might be a reason not to go into the family business. But, John, as you said, you know, definitely you don't want to be unethically yoked, you know, going into business, even if it's your family with unbelievers. That's always uh, a danger. So, you know, I think if you have a good, tight-knit family and you have the same passion as your family, um, I don't see anything wrong with that if it can be worked out. Now, I do think this is important. I think it's really important. That if people are going to go into business together as a family, that you know what, before they, before they actually start working and, and getting paid and do all that, that they sit down and they really go through the agreement of what is expected of you and how much you're going to get paid and, you know, what kind of hours are you going to work or what's going to be expected of you in this business. You know, I, because I have, you know, as a pastor been involved, um, you know, sometimes in some of those, uh, dealings, uh, with somebody who maybe is in, in business, you know, with their siblings or with their parents or something. And all of a sudden now, you know, we're hearing problems of, you know, well, I thought I would get paid more. Or I thought that. You know, I wouldn't have to work as many hours and it would be a little more fair, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that's wisdom is to maybe have a contract or at least get together and let's settle all those things before we delve in there. So I hope that helps, John. Oh, April, I hope that helps you, too. I I thought that's some great
1: counsel, some great advice. And we'll pray that the Lord uh, leads and guides you, April, as you or your family makes those kinds of decisions. Best to seek the Lord. He'll speak to you. You know, the Lord tells us to call upon him and he'll show us great and mighty things which we do not know. And so I hope that helps you. If you hang on the line, April, we'd love to send you out uh, some materials out there to Bakersfield. God bless you and thanks for calling. Well, let's go to Alexia in Utah. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you guys? Great. Great to have you on today. Awesome.
3: Um, I have a couple questions. My first one is about, like, I don't know any exact, like, scriptures in it, but Mm -hmm. I'm getting confused because in the Old Testament, it says to not eat, like, pig, um, shrimps, like, shellfish, all that kind of stuff. But it Mm -hmm. says in the—I keep hearing that in the New Testament, we
1: can. All right. Well, that is a really good question, and we probably— Uh, You know, and I got the guy to answer it. Scott, are we allowed to have bacon? Are we allowed to have shellfish? Is this is this old covenant, new covenant? Because I, you know, I like bacon. Is that okay? What do we say to this? And it's a serious thing that you ask, Alexia, because if you're just reading through it, you are think, wait a second. Am I in sin for eating this? Lord, is this wrong? Is this unclean? Can you give us a little bit of clarity on the old covenant, new covenant? What's clean? What's not
2: clean? Well, sure. Now it, now I'm going to, here's a little caveat. I'm going to say it depends on the person and what I mean by that. John, I agree with you. I love bacon and, uh, I love pig and, uh, you know, here in St. Louis, we love barbecue. So we Me love pig, <laughs> but I can't eat shellfish because I'm allergic. I'm okay. allergic to shellfish. So I get, I get that anaphylactic shock, you know, where I can't breathe. So oh. I can't eat shellfish. But that has nothing to do with what the Bible says. Okay. So what's, what's interesting, Alexa, is what you have is in Leviticus chapter 11, uh, God gives to Moses in the law, uh, the different foods that, that from God's perspective, he deems clean and unclean. Okay. And this is what the Israelites are to eat. And this is what they're, they're forbidden to eat. Now there's a reason God gave this to the Israelites. One of the reasons was to make them a distinct people from the rest of the nations. The the nation of Israel was chosen by God to be his witnesses in the earth to the rest of the nations. Uh, You know, the Hebrew nation, the Jews were just one small nation and the rest of the world, what what was known as in Hebrew, the goyim, that means the nations or, you know, the the rest of the people, the Gentiles is really what it means. Um, They were supposed to be a light to them in that through this very peculiar relationship they have with God. As they obey the Lord, the Lord blesses them. And then the people of the world see that, wow, God's a good God, and these people have a special relationship. Now, what's interesting is that's part of the reason for don't eat this and you can eat this in the Old Testament. Another reason, and uh, uh, also just as important reason, is God was telling Israel that if you eat these foods uh, that are forbidden or that are unclean, he said you now are considered unclean as far as being able to approach him at the tabernacle and later at the temple to be able to worship him okay so god told his people that for for them to be able to approach him they have to be clean okay and so what all of that uh, it was a picture of was being clean from their sin and from their defilement eating foods that were considered unclean would defile you and and deem you unfit to come before the presence of God to worship Him. Now, what is it that makes us that deems us unclean and unfit to be able to approach God? It's our sin, and so that's what these unclean foods represented. They defiled us. They, it was it was another example, physical example of our own uncleanness, uncleanness due to our sin. Okay, so here's what's interesting. What's interesting is in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in the law, there were three different categories of laws. There were the moral laws, which applied to all people at all time. There were the civil laws, which applied to Israel as they lived in the land. You know, like here in America, we we have laws in America that govern us. That's what the civil laws of the Old Testament were. And then you had what was called the ceremonial laws. And under the ceremonial laws were these laws concerning what food was clean and unclean. So if you ate something unclean, it defiled you, and you were now considered unfit or unable or ceremonially unclean to come to the temple to worship. Okay, that's what that's about in the Old Testament. But all of that has changed in the New Testament. And why is all that changed in the New Testament? Because all of that was a picture of our own sin. So Jesus came and he died for our sins. So now when it comes to us approaching God, whether it's through prayer, whether it's coming to church to worship him with the rest of the believers, uh, whether it's, you know, just us having communion and fellowship with God, we are able to do that. And it's not based on what we eat or what we don't eat. It's not based on are you a vegetarian or do you do you or do you not eat shellfish. It has nothing to do with it. Why? Because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us of all of our sins from all of our defilement that sin causes and makes us clean and fit to come before the throne of God. The book of the writer of Hebrews goes through great uh, great lengths to tell us that what the sacrifices. Were in the Old Testament that covered the sin, you know, covered and made an atonement for sins of people. In the Old Testament, the blood of Jesus Christ does now and even much more because it only took him one time to make one sacrifice to to make us clean and to make us fit to come to God. OK, now there is more to be said about when you come to the New Testament. Jesus said this. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. In fact, Jesus said, whatever a man eats or drinks, uh his body, it, it's eliminated through his body, through his digestive system, and it's gone. <laughs> so Jesus said, you're not defiled and, and considered unclean before God because of what you eat and drink. But he says that it's the defilement comes from our own hearts, the sin that's in our hearts. But Jesus, when he forgives us of our sins, cleanses us with his blood, he gives us a new heart. He gives us... A clear conscience where we're not, we, we don't now have this overwhelming guilt of our sin because of his blood making that atonement for us. Okay. So, you know, I'm going to stop right there because John, you may have some things you might want to bring in. Well, I think those are
1: just uh, really but, amazing, yeah, points, valid points that you made and really gives a clear picture. Um, but I would, the only thing I would add to that, Alexia is, you know, in, in during the Old Testament, I mean, you have to think about, Preparing a pig or preparing shellfish, there were certain diseases that were connected. They didn't have refrigeration. Yeah. There were certain animals that would actually carry certain things that would make you sick. And and if God told His people not to partake of anything or partake of something in particular, it was because He was protecting them. And so I think you got to think: yes, ceremonially, a hundred percent. Also, just practically there were certain animals that God knew you don't want to eat that out in the middle of the wilderness because that'll make you sick. It's unclean for you at the same time. There's a whole list of things they could eat and some of them are rather interesting, but I hope that helps you, Alexia. Yeah,
3: definitely. Thank you so much.
1: You're so welcome. If you stay on the line, we'd love to send you out uh, some materials just because you're a listener and we're thankful for you. So God bless you out there in Utah. Let's go to Dan who is in Bend, Oregon. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Just a quick question. You got uh, any idea how the 144,000 were saved? Oh, that's a really good question. How were the 144,000 saved? Maybe, Pastor Scott, why don't we start with who are the 144,000? Cause people always ask that question. There's some groups out there that think that they're the 144,000, but the Bible tells us who they are, actually. They're from the tribes of Israel. And, and not only that, but how
2: did they get saved? Pastor Scott? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And, uh, so what's interesting is when you look at Revelation chapter seven, where this comes from, Obviously, these are Jewish people from the nation of Israel, because in verses 4, you know, all the way down to verse 8, it tells us of the different tribes of Israel they came from, and 12,000 came from each tribe, equaling 144,000. So what these are, these are 144,000 Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They believe Jesus is their Messiah. And in response to that, and somehow connected to that, the Bible says that God has actually sealed them as his servants for the time of the tribulation, or at least uh, the, the big portion of the tribulation. So what's interesting is, is as you continue to read that chapter, the next thing we see in verse nine and for the rest of the ch- rest of the chapter It then talks about this group of people, this multitude, which no one can number from all nations, all tribes, people, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes of palm branches in their hands and crying out salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. So because of that, many Bible scholars believe that the 144,000 Jews that God seals, and why does He seal them? Well, when when god sealed him and put his name upon them on his head what he's actually doing is he's marking them out as his own and any time in the new testament uh, in, in the in the greek the word for seal anytime you would seal something you were saying that that is your possession number one it belongs to you and also a seal was also a mark of ownership that you know this is something that belongs to you and it was also a mark of protection people knew not to touch something because it had the seal of the owner on it and so these people belong to God now how did they actually come to believe in Jesus Christ well you know um it, it, it's, a it could question, have been. Really. it's a great question it's a great question and it tells us i i think part of the answer might be in that whole thing that God sealed them that that somehow you know he's the one who worked in their hearts who showed them showed them that Jesus was their savior. We're going to see that. We're going to see that at the end of the tribulation. Uh right before Jesus comes again, God's going to take the remnant of Israel and he's going to open their eyes according to Zechariah chapter 12 and they're going to they're going to finally realize Jesus was their Messiah and call out for him and say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then according to Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, Jesus is going to respond to them by coming again. And saving Israel, the the Israel that's left, because Zechariah uh, 13 says uh, two-thirds of the nation are going to be wiped out, and the rest are going to put their faith in Jesus Messiah because they have nowhere else to turn, and then Jesus is going to come and save the nation. So it's interesting because some, I believe somehow God God has opened their eyes to Jesus being the Messiah here. And I think it, it's wrapped up in this whole idea that he singles them out and he seals them for himself. Um, You know, now somehow, you know, during the first part of the tribulation, you know, um you know, do they hear the gospel somehow that I don't know. So this is a great question. But I, I think, of, you know, when you just look at the Bible itself, I think. Th- that most of that answer probably is wrapped up in that whole point in verse three, um, where it actually says that, that God has sealed his servants on their foreheads and that this is a work that he has done and that he's marked them out for himself. So I wish I had a better answer. So John, well, I think that's a great <laughs> answer.
1: I also think that it really gives us some insight. You know, people often ask the question, will there be people saved during the tribulation period? And yep. the answer is yes. Here's 144,000 that are saved. And these 144,000, they're going to be evangelists, Dan. They're going to be sharing the gospel. We also know that in Revelation, there's an angel flying back and forth proclaiming the everlasting gospel. There's going to be two witnesses that show up. I mean, there's going to be some evangelistic work going on during the tribulation period. Eyes are going to be open. So um, great question, Dan. I really appreciate that. I hope that helped you. Sure did. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Stay on the line. We'd love to send you out some materials. If you hang on, we'll uh, put you in contact with our folks here at Every Man and Answer. Also, listen, we do have a couple of lines open still. 888-ASK-CSN. If you have a Bible question, encourage you to call in. We'd love to talk to you today. But now let's go out to Juan. Juan in Palm Springs, California. Juan, welcome to the program. Great to have you on.
7: Yes, thank you. Uh, God bless you.
1: You too, brother.
7: Yes, I have a uh, simple question. It's... uh... How the angels, um, you know, when the Bible says in Numbers 22, uh, verse 23, that uh, an angel has uh, a sword? Mm -hmm. If you read that, you can find out. But my question is how an angel can have a a sword and convert it like to a weapon to execute anything that he needs to do.
1: Well, that's a really good question. So how does an angel use a sword? And what does it mean? Is it actual sword? Is it like, uh, you know, that he's, he's unsheathing? Um, what, what does it mean? You know, I, did, the first thing that comes to mind, and I'm going to hang this over to my colleague, but one thing that comes to mind, Juan, I think of when Jesus comes back and it says a sharp sword proceeds out of his mouth and with it he strikes the nations Um then we know that angelic beings do have power when jesus was there in the garden of gethsemane and the disciples sought to defend him he told them to put away their swords say like, don't you know how many angels i could call down right now and wipe all of these people out and you see in throughout the old testament one angel could do serious damage imagine thousands upon thousands but Pastor Scott, what does it mean, and and what does that mean? We think about an angel with a sword. Is it an actual sword, an Excalibur coming out, or what? What
2: does it mean? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, when it connects an angel with a sword, it's it's always angels that are visible on Earth. You know, from studying angels in the Bible, it it what we see is when when angels appear on earth, they usually appear as men. And that would be, you know, a, a connection there that, um, that an angel is materializing. Uh, you know, we do know this. We know, first of all, let's start there that angels are spirit beings and we know that they are spiritual beings and spiritual beings you can't see. So we, we don't, you know, we don't see the angels that are around us because they're spirit beings and they can't be seen, but God does. He did in the Bible. There's times and actually the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that some people even entertain angels without even knowing it. They interact with angels without even knowing it. Um, and the Bible does tell us that God allows angels sometimes to materialize, to be seen. But in the Bible, most of the time when you see them materialize, they appear as men, as human men. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing. What's interesting is the whole idea about them having swords simply, simply speaks of their power, I think. Um, now when you do look at different scriptures, um, and again, we're talking about angels materializing here. The only way, you know, a, an angel could hold a sword in his hand is again, if he materialized, if he had a physical body, you know, and appeared, in that, in that form of a man and had a sword in his hand. And that's what, and what's interesting is we do see that, you know, Genesis 3.24 tells us that, you know, when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, that God, um, put there at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubim that had a flaming sword. And, you know, are we, are we looking there at, you know, actual cherubim that are materialized with swords? It, it, it appears. You know, but there the angels basically are just, and those swords act as a roadblock so that Adam and Eve in their fallen sinful condition don't go back to the tree of life and eat from this tree of life and live forever in a sinful fallen state. It was actually a, an act of mercy on God's part by putting those angels there. Mm-hmm. But there are other instances, right? Numbers 22, um, where you know, uh, Balaam is riding his donkey, and all of a sudden the donkey sees an angel of the Lord. So obviously, you know, he could see it there. Now, Balaam was clueless to the whole thing, but the donkey could see, and it talks about how the uh, angel of the Lord was standing in the way and had his sword drawn in his hand, you know, and th- that's why the donkey turned away. And, uh, and then when Balaam's eyes were opened, he saw the angel standing there with a sword in his hand. And um, you know, it it's interesting because the angel gives the inference there that, you know, if you kept going, uh, you know, I'd killed you. <laughs> you know, so and, and there's different instances. There are those instances where the Bible tells us about angels appearing and they have swords in their hands. And, you know, in some instances they're they're doing battle. They're doing physical battle with people and and such. So I think we I think we do have um, a, a, a construct and a, and a, and a, uh, a foundation for that in the Bible. But to say that all angels have swords, I would say no, uh, just the way God only lets them materialize, uh, so people can see them for a certain purpose. I think the angels only have a sword for a certain purpose. Uh, and that's the purpose that God has sent them. Uh, for what God has sent him to do with that sword here on earth, if that makes sense. So, John, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear what you had to share about this.
1: Hey, I agree with you. I, the Bible says it. And and how, I think what's going to be amazing, Juan, is when we get to heaven and we see these angels, and we're you know what? That is a sword. That is definitely exactly what they described <laughs> it as. And how you use it, we're going to be ama- There's going to be a lot of amazing things that we're going to find out in heaven. You know, the Bible does say that we know in part There's certain things that we know and certain things we speculate about, and and yet there's other things that we know uh, concretely. But uh, that's great references that you made there. And Juan, I hope that helps you out there in Palm Springs. Yes.
7: Yes, pastor. So what we see is uh, they have uh, another dimension. Like uh, we not even, you know, like like you say, things that we never see. But for them it's easy, especially if God sent them. That's but right. wow, it's amazing uh, how an angel can transform uh, something spiritual to something material. It's it's amazing. Uh-huh. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. Well, Juan, thank you so much for calling, brother. If you stay on the line, we'd love to send you out some materials, and just really appreciate you calling today out there in Palm Springs, California. And uh, thanks again for calling. Well, we are. Well, we are. We got one minute left here, and. Oh, man, if you're still on the line waiting, I'm pretty sure we're going to have to get to you tomorrow. But, um, you know, we could—yeah, we might have to pause for a second. Well, let me—Pamela, Livingston, Montana, real quick, what's your question?
3: So I was at a ladies' Bible study, and um, they were talking about after um, Christ's return in the millennium that uh, the sea will be destroyed. And I— don't recall reading that i one thing if you can enlighten me
1: that is a great question hey Pastor scott 30 seconds can you get that out what's going to happen to the sea
2: yeah the well the book of revelation tells us that early on or, or, or early on in in, in the uh, i'm sorry revelation 21 22 Uh, it tells us that in the new heaven, new earth, that there is no sea and that's what we read there. So, um, that's, it's, it's not going to be there.
1: (laughs) I tell you for surfers like me, I'm like, Lord, there's gotta be something better than, than that. If you got, we, you know, Pamela, that's a great question. I think we need to dive a little bit deeper on that, but encourage you. It's in revelation. Look that up. And, uh, Well, thanks for calling today out there from Montana. Pastor Scott, thank you so much for your time and I really appreciate getting the opportunity to hang out with you. And everybody, we'll see you next time. God bless you.
0: 357-4226. Or write us to every man and answer. P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho 83303. That toll free number is 1-800-357-4226.